Good morning. Well, this morning we are going to be talking about the day the music died. That fateful day when the plane crashed with Buddy Holly and his other members of his group and has forever been known as the day the music died. And it is tied to the guest I'm going to be chatting with. She is going to be presenting a lecture coming up called Dark Tourism and City Government. So it's kind of an interesting mix of the titles there. I thought, oh, this is going to be about music. No, it's about government. Well, it's part of the 42nd Annual Frontier Forum Lecture that's going to be held Tuesday, March 29th from 2 to 3.30 in the Ostrander Auditorium in the Centennial Student Union here on the campus at Minnesota State. And with me today, I have Dr. Beth Wilde Heidelberg, and she has been on the faculty at Minnesota State's Urban and Regional Studies Institute in the Department of Government since 2004. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. Well, when I saw this title, Beth, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Not fade away. Of course, immediately thought of Buddy Holly and all the rest on the, the plane. And then the following, dark tourism and city government. All right. What is that all about? Well, dark tourism is related to places and locations that people love to visit, but they're associated with tragedy and death and other things that are really considered rather morbid. So it's an unusual faction of heritage tourism. Well, it, it certainly is dark because a lot of people I know do go to that site where the plane crashed just out of Clear Lake, Iowa, where the and it was that city where they played their last concert and the three performers and the pilot died in that crash. So how do you take something like that and basically make lemonades out of lemon? And you're as a city urban planner, that's obviously something you're going to talk about. Right. That's actually the crux of my discussion. Uh, the city of Clear Lake has actually done an excellent job of taking this awful event that killed three very promising musicians that were really just starting what would have been a very long career. And they acknowledge that tragedy. They acknowledge that that was a horrible thing and that it left a lot of devastated people, not just their families, who are, of course, the most important, but legions of fans. Sure. So they had to figure out how to make that into something that is extremely positive. And what the city of Clear Lake did, and what I find particularly remarkable, they've turned it into an opportunity. They've turned it into an opportunity to educate the public about music history and the context of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson, where it lies in the musical history context. Um, they do annual winter party uh, dances still to this day. They have educational programs for kids in the region to come and learn about music history and the music of that era. So it never really dies out. And they acknowledge the families. They have worked very closely, particularly with um, the Holly, Holly Richardson and Valens families to keep those memories alive. You know, because that could be considered a bit morbid. Yes. So how do you make that something like that so it's not morbid? Well, the the hardest part is not focusing on the actual event. The crash was terrible. Yeah. Everybody acknowledges this. This is something that devastated so many people. They don't focus on the moment of impact. They focus on the legacy that the musicians were building before and what it's left behind afterwards. They acknowledge how this event brought rock and roll into a broader public interest. People understood, they, they were more interested in looking into rock and roll because 
they heard about this crash. Hey, this crash happened. What's this all about? What did these musicians produce? Maybe it increased their fan base because in the late 1950s, as you know, rock and roll was still an emerging form. So at that point, any anything that would sort of draw an interest it kind of ties to the legacy of those three musicians in addition to the wonderful body of music that they produced while they were with us. Well, can you name or think of some other dark tourism sites that around the nation or world that have basically taken something kind of tragic and made it into something more positive? One of my favorite examples in one city that I studied extensively before uh, Clear Lake was Salem, Massachusetts. The 1692 Salem Witch Trials obviously a terrible event. It ended up with a basically systematic murders of about 20 people. And that is a terrible thing. It was unfair. There were a lot of community issues around that. But what Salem has done is they've acknowledged that this happened here. This is something we cannot let happen again. They have turned that, like Clear Lake, into an educational opportunity to teach about injustice and equity and um, fairness, diversity. And they not only acknowledge this and have that educational platform, but they're also kind of poking fun at the absurdity of how this event ended up happening. They have celebrations. They have a Halloween event that draws in millions of people every year. Um, it's remarkable what they've done with that. Of course, a lot of people know Mankato was the site of the hanging of the 32 Native Americans. And I don't think it's been until more recent years that that's even been acknowledged. It was kind of one of those things you wanted to push into the background. And it's been, I, I don't even know how many years back, but then they put a, a monument out there to acknowledge it. You'll see by the library where that all happened. And trying to work with like the the powwow in, in incorporating that as a part of our history. Is there something more that a city like Mankato could do to make that that tragedy into more of a positive event? Well, from what I've studied and from what I've researched, I think Mankato's handling it the right way. They're acknowledging this happened, that this was a horrible thing. Um, if there would have been a time traveling, <laughs> some sort of tra time travel device that could go back and try to uh, undo it, I'm sure they would try. Uh, but they acknowledge it happened. They are using it as a way to connect the Native American traditions into modern society and say, this happened. Here's how we're going to try to heal from it. We're going to try to connect with this community and we're going to try to acknowledge what happened and why it happened and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I think the education has been a piece because I know at the powwow they bring out students from schools and everything and, and give a part of that education as a part of the history and the culture. And that's what I'm noticing most with successful dark tourism sites is they turn it into an educational opportunity. They're not just acknowledging it. They're trying to find some way to acknowledge the pain, move on from it while preventing it from happening again. Now, in Urban and Regional Studies Institute in the Department of Government since 2004, you have been teaching students in urban planning and local government administra administration, but your specialty area is historic architectural preservation policy. What exactly is that? I love old buildings, and I really <laughs> want to see them saved. <laughs> well, do you know how many, I mean, that's been a thing in Mankato, maybe you've heard this for years, so many of the historical buildings here have been torn down, right. and that's been a real sticking and sore point with a lot of people because we aren't preserving a lot of that history. 
Right. And that's uh, what I'm trying to teach is that urban planning, that's all about innovating and moving forward. But historic preservation policy isn't trying to prevent that. It's not a way to put a little glass dome over the community. It's a way to preserve the resources that are valuable to the community while still making them economically viable. Uh, a building needs to contribute to the economy of the of the city or what's it really doing there. So historic preservation policy is all about trying to preserve it and make it functional in modern society. And when you say preserving historical, what is considered historical? Um, by definition, it's usually 50 years or older and in decent condition. I mean, you could have a building that's old, but it's had vinyl, vinyl siding and it's new windows put on. Probably not going to retain the same historic value. In one instance here in Mankato, maybe you're aware of this, is the old post office here in yeah. Mankato. And they are going to be doing something with that to preserve that. I think a lot of people were worried when they moved out that would go by the wayside like a lot of other buildings have. Right. And that's one thing that... Um, I, I've actually talked to some people about that, about doing something called adaptive reuse. And oh. adaptive reuse is when you take an older building and retrofit the interior so it really meets a modern need. Like the old post office, maybe it wasn't set up for Wi-Fi. Maybe it can be now. Maybe the rooms need to be adjusted a little bit to um, accommodate living quarters or um, some sort of commercial use. And that's one of the mistakes that people make about historic preservation is they think that just because you're historic, you can't touch it. You can't do anything with it. But that's not true. <laughs> you can you can still have historic designation. But if you're getting federal money for it, maybe that is true to some extent. But if you're not getting federal money to do any preservation work, it's still privately owned and you still have the rights to do stuff. How do you know when you've gone too far in changing what's historical <laughs> in something because like you said I mean you could leave the outside so it looks the same but if you change the inside and I'm thinking of the the post office I don't know if you wear but it, it has court uh, offices up there and they're beautiful wood walls and I because I, when I used to be in TV I covered court cases and oh, just yeah. the beautiful amazing uh, woodwork and everything so how, where's the line and how much you <laughs> save and how much you don't save? That's that's always kind of the question. And that's why I encourage people with historic buildings to start asking architectural historians. There's consulting firms that can help people with that. There's the uh, State Historic Preservation Office that works with individuals on these things. Um, there's a program called Rethos, R-E-T-H-O-S, and they help homeowners and business owners with historic preservation and they can kind of help guide some of these projects. I would say that if you're damaging the exterior to the point where it's not recognizable then that's too far obviously but you want to try to save as much as you can. In your studies did you look at cost analysis and how much it makes sense to leave something versus how much it's going to take to maintain or restore that yeah. is it cost effective and sometimes maybe it's not yeah there are there are cases where it isn't cost effective to save and that's why i always tell my students that a good preservationist is going to know when you can't save something when it's not viable economically when it's not safe if a building is not safe it has to go even if it's yeah. beautiful um but sometimes, yeah, sometimes it is more cost effective to tear it down. And I hate saying that because yeah. I am a preservationist, but it is true. You have to look at moving the community forward. So since this is your area of expertise, what are some of the most cool old buildings you can think of that maybe you've seen or observed that have been restored? 
Oh, one of my favorites is in downtown St. Paul, the Union Depot. Um, it used it was a train station, obviously Union Depot. Um, but for many years after the train stopped running so much, it basically closed down. So the head house was open for events and stuff. Um, I, I actually had my wedding there because oh, I wow. love this building so much. Um, but recently they've opened up the concourse and it's running trains and it's running actually multimodal transportation. It's got a bike trail, uh, kind of a wayside for bikes. It's got a bike shop for that. It runs the light rail. The light, light rail stops right in front of it. Um, bus services out of there. I mean, they have opened it up, but they have done a wonderful job restoring that. In Mankato, um, I'm let's see. I, I'm not from the Mankato okay. area, so I don't. I'm not as familiar with all the projects. But there is a bank building right next to the Civic Center, and I'm blanking on what the name is of is. It the landmark? Uh, no, not that one. It's attached to the arena, um, right across from City uh, Hall. or it, the. My mind's blank, too, yeah. but anyway, I know what you're talking <laughs> but about. But it's so beautiful, and we've done events there for my department. And Oh, it, with, they have the Ellerbee room in there. Yeah, yeah that okay. huge one. And I think they've done a remarkable job making that really a, a viable place for community use, even to this day, even though they have really done a good job preserving it. So. Yeah, there's a lot of great examples in Mankato. I know they're... Oh, have you been to New Ulm? Because New Ulm is probably one of the, the communities that has preserved a lot of their historical storefronts with the, the beautiful brick and the German architecture. And I know we chatted about your name. Heidelberg is, is German. <laughs> I was just wondering if you've ever had a chance to visit there and see how they've preserved a lot of their historical downtown. I've um, When I was a consultant back in the early thousands, which seems so <laughs> long ago now, uh, I was able to um, work on a proposal for doing National Registry nominations in that area. So I've gotten to kind of explore and, oh, I, I could spend a lot more time there. I would at that downtown. There's a uh, German-looking building with this step gable that is just oh, it's beautiful, beautiful. It's, yeah, there, and there's a yeah. bunch of others down there too. So I was just wondering because they, I think that they have been another example of using their historic connections for tourism. I don't know that they have a dark tourism necessarily, <laughs> but you're talking because in your lecture you're spe specifically focusing on dark tourism, right? Right. Why is that? Uh, I'm my, just curious how you, you how know, I got into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How does someone get into that? It is kind of an unusual um, aspect of tourism research. In fact, you're not going to find a lot of research done before 1999 on dark tourism. Oh, it's been around mm -hmm. since you know the Roman times with the gladiator games and people going to visit the relics of um, saints and stuff. People always going to see a finger bone or whatever. So it dates back to the dark Middle Ages, Dark Ages, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, and. Only recently are we recognizing that this may not be pure heritage tourism. It's it's a little unusual. I got into it because when I was a kid, I was fascinated with the Titanic. Fascinated uh. with everything about it. I I mean, I still to this day, I can rattle off facts. And when that movie came out in 97, I was just You were super there. Excited. Oh, I was there like four or five times. Oh. <laughs> um, but... As I grew older, I was um, drawn to things like ghost tours when I would visit other cities. And it wasn't necessarily the spooky stories that came out of it. I wanted to see the architecture and I wanted to know the real stories behind it. And eventually I found out that this is actually a legitimate field of study. So, but most people are studying the psychology behind dark tourism. Why do people go there? Or the sociology. How are people, do? why are they doing this and um even managing these sites. How do you manage a site at dark tourism? Nobody's really studying local government response. The thing that fascinates me is 
there's dark tourism, but there's a community that's hosting dark tourism. The community is impacted by these tragic events and nobody's studying it. So that's kind of uh, where I'm carving out my little niche. Is that your research then? I mean, literally, you are researching these things. So how does one go about doing that? Is it going to the places? Is it going into archives or...? Little bit of both. Okay. Um, when I was out in Salem, I talked to the planners. I talked to people in the Chamber of Commerce. I went and experienced it myself. I've done a lot of exploring, just kind of looking at the sites and how it's being preserved and finding out what's publicly owned and what's privately owned. And how is the local government working with the private sector? Because I don't believe that government is the only one that should be operating these dark tourism sites. I think they can have involvement, but I think they can coordinate with the private and nonprofit sectors. I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes and say this is a local government issue. It's not. It affects every sector in the community. I think of the shooting of George Floyd and how Mm -hmm. that area became sort of a a memorial almost where they had the the, mural and everything. And and, I mean, that would be considered dark tourism. I suspect it's going to gain momentum as a dark tourism destination. You know, so how should a city manage that? Because they also probably are thinking, well, we don't want to bring the memory Mm -hmm. to that awful thing. But yet there are people who say we need to remember. People are going to go there, whether the local government wants them to or not. And in in my research, in my discussion, I indicate that even if it's not something that the city's comfortable with, it's going to happen. So are you just going to ignore it and let all these visitors come and not handle it? Or are you going to provide additional public safety, like like patrols and fire protection and emergency protection? Are you going to handle garbage? Because tourists leave stuff. (laughs) They leave stuff. They, you know, they throw gum wrappers down. Um, There's going to be extra erosion on sidewalks and streets. And those are the things that local governments have to plan for. So even if they don't want to get involved in interpreting the site, interpretation or memorialization, they, if they want to leave that to the private sector, the nonprofit sector, they still have to be involved in supporting with general city services, and they they need to plan for that. Now, do you think that is happening very much? You say you're studying it, so do you, are you finding that sometimes they're not involved and you think they need to be involved? I'm so glad you asked that. My next research is going to involve Amityville, New York. Oh, wow. Um, okay. They do not want to acknowledge the Amityville horror. But um, everybody knows about it. Everyone knows about it. The house itself, people are still going up and knocking on the doors in the middle of the night. They're still wanting to see where everything happened. And it's all based in a very real family homicide. I mean, there were five people killed at at that site. The ghost story didn't start until the next family that moved in. It's the ghost story most people acknowledge and that that's what they want to see. After the ghost story, people moved out. The next residents never reported anything. They said absolutely nothing has happened, but people still want to see it. I talked to one of the friends of one of the daughters that was murdered in the initial DeFeo family homicides. And she said that when they were kids, after it all happened, and they were still getting a lot of press when the movie came out, tourists would come to Amityville, and they would direct them away from the house. They would say, oh, yeah, we know where that house is. You have to go up the road about two miles. And, you know, they would try to... The community does not want that notoriety. But it's there. So, I mean, kind of. I think for mm-hmm. a long time, Mankato didn't want that notoriety. It'd be about right. the hanging of the 38 uh, Native Americans. But I think that they have since embrace the fact that people know about it they need to educate themselves about why it happened and right. and so the Am- Amityville sounds like they 
maybe need a little lesson? Or I mean, <laughs> is that going to be part of your research? Is yes. go more on that? Yes, because ignoring it doesn't work. Yeah. It just doesn't work. It's not going to stop people from finding it themselves. The only difference is the community is not going to have the opportunity to show them what else they have. True. And then you get a lot of the rumors, I assume, too, then the stories build because nobody's really telling them what really is part of it. Right. They have no way to interpret the story or provide context or um, contribute anything about the community. And one of the things I think Clear Lake does that's particularly good, and Salem does this too, is they say, hey, we have this site. We know you want to see the Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and J.P. Richardson stuff, and we're going to accommodate that. We've got a few sites for you to visit. But have you also seen our recreational opportunities? Have you also explored our downtown and seen what else we have to offer? Come to our hotels, uh, places to eat, I suppose, yes. things like that. Yep. And that money goes back into the community for infrastructure and services. So it's not the type of money any city really courts. It's not something that they're saying, hey, let's have this tragic event so we can make money off of it. Cities don't want that either, but it's going to happen. Yeah. So why not invest it back in the community that's still healing from these events? It's like making lemonade out of lemons. It is really making is. lemonade out of lemons. <laughs> so when you speak, you'll be going to be talking on Tuesday, March 29th from 2 to 3.30 in Ostrander Auditorium here on campus. What can people expect to see or hear when you are up on stage? Well, they'll hear me talk about dark tourism kind of as a general idea. What's the difference between heritage tourism and dark tourism? Uh, I'll give them a little introduction into Clear Lake, Iowa, and the economic impact of just general tourism in that area. I'll talk a little bit about the musicians themselves um, and the impacts that they had and the winter dance party, which was the final tour that they were on. And then I'll talk about what I've noticed what I observed when I was down in Clear Lake working with the city administrator, Scott Flory, and Mayor Nelson Crabb. Um, I'll talk a little bit about some of the local government policies and um, developments that they put together and how that's really meant to improve wayfinding and, and helping guide tourists through the city. So hopefully it it's not going to be a strictly academic theoretical talk. This is on the ground applied stuff. And that's what we do in urban studies. How long did it take the city to embrace that and decide that this tragedy, we need to embrace it because people are coming here to see the, the crash site or, or whatever. Do you know the history of where the, when all of a sudden somebody said we should do something? Um, initially, it was... It was one of those things where everybody knew about it, but nobody really set up anything formal. Then in the 1970s, a local DJ, the Mad Hatter, okay. and I'm blanking on his uh, name right now. I apologize if he's if he hears this. Um, but the Mad Hatter reinitiated the winter dance party, oh, okay. and people started to go there, and they wanted to see where all of these sites were. And so over time, the city started working with the Surf Ballroom, which is a privately owned business. And eventually they developed a museum at the Surf Ballroom. They helped the Surf Ballroom and the Chamber of Commerce kind of coordinate a nonprofit organization um, that really focused on mm -hmm. preserving the surf, not, not necessarily just the crash. Was part stuff. of the Historical Society down there as well? Did I believe so. Okay. And I'm afraid I don't have uh, statistics on that that's, or no, anything. But um, they... I can document specific preservation and acknowledgments to the 70s. Okay. I didn't really I didn't see a lot before that, but that doesn't mean that people weren't going. 
It just means that that's when things really started to gain momentum. I always wonder why more in Mankato isn't done with the Cato Ballroom, because mm. that has such a uh, his significant history, too, including Buddy Holly and all those those yeah. folks. And it it's there, but and it used to be a huge thing. So what's happening? Why isn't it bigger? That's a really good question. I was just down there um, doing some uh, some touring, just looking mm. around at it. And it's very well preserved. It's, it's beautiful, yeah. It's a beautiful venue. And I would love to see that become more of a thing. I suspect that once the arena and some of the more public spaces in the downtown uh, came into existence, that's, that kind of drew some of that right. business away. Because it is kind of in a hidden area. It's not really on the main A drag. little industrial. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know what the parking situation is when there's a big event. Is is it pretty? Uh, it's not the best. I know when I was in a band and sang on that stage, I just remember that feeling of thinking, I'm singing on the same stage that Buddy Holly yeah. and those all those greats were on. And that was just such a cool thing. And so it made me wonder why it isn't more of a, a draw. Yeah, I... I suspect that that it's just competing with some of the larger venues. Yeah. The larger venues can draw in the bigger names, and they're more getting space more revenue. To get that, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Well, that's something for you to research and let us know. <laughs> <laughs> Come back, Beth, and let us know about that. Well, it sounds like a really great talk that you're going to be doing. I assume you'll have uh, visuals and things to go along with that, because since you're an architectural nerd, <laughs> yep, yep, I'm a nerd. <laughs> And uh, being an architectural nerd, you always have presentation. You always have something to show with what you're saying. You sure. just do. Uh, so unfortunately, I'm not always able to get specific pictures. Like some of them are family photos from the Holly and Valenzuela and um, Richardson families. And it's harder to secure those rights. But uh, we've got some good visuals. And actually, they're going to be playing the music of these musicians all day in the CSU. Oh, really? That's yeah. great. You know what? I think we'll have to do that on KMSU as well. Maybe I'll be playing some in conjunction with our interview because why not? Why, why not? Why wouldn't we? It's good music. Yeah, it is. It's great. Anything else you'd like us to know, Beth? about your presentation. Well, I'd like uh, I'd like people to know that it will be broadcast on Zoom as well, and you can attend that way. And there's a link on um, the MSU website. I, I You might have to search for it. You might have to go into the search bar and write Frontier Forum. But okay, so MNSU and then Frontier Forum, yeah. which is what the, the presentation is, the annual Frontier Forum lecture, yep. will be presented by Beth Wildy Heidelberg, yeah. and she is a professor here at Minnesota State's Regional Studies Institute in the Department of Government since 2004. Wonderful to chat with you. You're very interesting. I hope you get a good turnout on Tuesday and uh, love to hear more from you as you do some more of your research. Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a very strange but just fascinating <laughs> area of research. Yes, and the, it is called Not Fade Away, Dark Tourism and City Government. Thank you, Beth. Thank you.